Luke and worship team, I'd invite you to take your copy of the Lord's Word and turn to Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. So we're going to talk today about what is righteousness. Next week, there will be, like last week, there will be a part two to this. And I would invite you to be a part of next week as to fully appreciate uh, today's message. Uh, next week will be very helpful. Uh, Habakkuk is the prophet we've been looking at this summer. And he is the complaining prophet. If you've ever found yourself as a complainer, or maybe people consider you a complainer, that type of thing. Listen, listen, there is a book of the Bible for you, and it is called Habakkuk. He had his ministry, was essentially was complaining to God about why things were the way they are and why God was choosing to act in a way that God was seemingly choosing to act. And last week, we talked about, really the last two times that we talked, but in particular last week, what do you do when your God box breaks? When God operates outside of your box of understanding. The first week of the God box, we talked about that when you put God in the box, you better leave the lid open because you cannot contain him. He's going to blow your mind. And then when your box is blown, this was last week, how do you pick up the pieces? Well, you bring your lack of understanding. God, why would you let this happen? God, why are you doing this? Why are you choosing to act in this way? Or why are you choosing to be distant? Whatever that is, God, why would you let us have this happen in our house? This happened with our children. This happened in my marriage. This happened in our job, in our city, in our country. All of those things, when that gets blown up and you have all of these questions that you bring, we find that last week Habakkuk sits on the wall and he waits for an answer. That was the thrust of last week, was realizing it is okay to bring your questions, your honest questions and petitions to God. If life is not adding up or the world is not adding up or the hardship you are enduring or the things God is seemingly allowing is not adding up, you bring those to God and you wait for an answer. And that's what Habakkuk did. He stands on the wall in the tower and he waits for the answer, and that's where we pick up this week. Verse number one of chapter two. We read this last week. And I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Now, before I read God's answer, what was Habakkuk's complaint? God, his first complaint was God why are you not doing something about the wickedness among my people? Why are you not doing anything about the moral decay? Why are you not doing anything about injustice? Why are you not doing anything about the strong taking advantage of the weak? Why are you not doing anything about the righteous being persecuted by the unrighteous? All of this, why are you not doing anything about this in Judah? And God's response was, oh, I am doing something. I actually already am doing something. I'm going to bring the Babylonians, and I'm going to use Babylon to discipline Judah, which led to Habakkuk's second complaint, which was, whoa, God, why in the world would you use Babylon to discipline Judah? I mean, Judah's bad, but Babylon is like way, 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 way worse. They scoop up, remember the text last week? They scoop up all the peoples of the earth like fishes, and they cast, catch them in a dragnet, and they 
steal all of their wealth and vitality and they steal from others in order to live um, prosperously themselves. Why use them? I'm going to sit on the wall and wait for my answer. And God speaks. Verse 2. Here's God's answer. Why does God work the way he works? And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still, the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he never has enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. So, today, our question is, what is righteousness? If I were to ask you this morning to define righteousness, just mentally in your head, right where you are, what is righteousness? Or what does it mean to be righteous? What would your answer in your head be? Just mentally make a note. So if you were asked to define righteousness, what would your answer be? And would your answer be in line with scripture? We're going to look at that today. And then you can do an inventory with yourself at the end. Do I understand what the Bible says when it speaks of righteousness? Or am I using the word differently? So, principle number one, before we talk about righteousness, we want to deal with the fact that as Habakkuk is dealing with what he seems to be, this inconsistency with God, even though he knows that's not true, because his God box, God box is blown up, he's waiting on the wall, God, how could you do this? How could you possibly use the bad as opposed to the not as bad? How could you possibly use the worst people on earth to discipline people who are not as bad as they are? All of these things. God, why would you work through bad? Why not just work through good? Isn't good easier? Habakkuk is sitting on the wall. First thing we see, God does not leave Habakkuk hanging on the wall. God does not leave Habakkuk hanging on the wall. Look in verse number one. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower, and I will look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Verse number two. What do we read? And the Lord answered me. So last week we learned that it is okay to bring honest questions to God and saying, hey, this doesn't add up. I'm struggling to understand why life is this way given who God you are and what we know of you. Why is it this way? And what we find is that God answers Habakkuk. So first, God does not leave Habakkuk hanging on the wall. So it tells us this, God answers. He does not ignore the petition or the question asked from a place of humble belief. One of the things you'll find throughout the scripture is when people are struggling for an answer, for God to give them a word, 
when they ask from a place of belief and not a place of grumbling and doubt, you will be hard-pressed to find an example in the Scripture where God did not answer His people. Habakkuk shows us that when you sit on the wall and you say, God, why is life this way? This is so hard. It is reasonable for us to expect that God will answer us and give us what we need to know. Because he answered Habakkuk. Next, God's answers also are straightforward. God's answers are straightforward. We are always clearly, always able to clearly understand what we need to know. Look at verse number two. It says, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. Now, so for you all to know, I'm a practitioner. I'm not a Bible scholar. But the Bible scholars who look at this stuff and look at verse number two, they say that the original Hebrew here is very difficult to translate. We don't know exactly what it means. This is a best attempt in English to describe what is actually taking place here. Write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. Essentially, a modern example would be this. God is saying, Habakkuk, I'm going to put the answer on a road sign, on a billboard, so that nobody can miss it. The word here for tablets is the same tablets that the word was used in Exodus for the stone tablets. And God is saying, write it so clear in such big letters, Habakkuk, that even if someone is running with stone tablets, even the runner can read and understand. It's just a metaphor to show us that God, when he answers, his answers are clear. We don't know everything we want to know, but we clearly know everything we need to know. We're always able to clearly understand what we need to know. So it's another thing as we sit on the wall and say, God, I need an answer. First, God answers. Secondly, God clearly reveals to us what we need to know. It's not cryptic. It's a way that we can understand. He's not holding out on us. Next is that God's answers are always first connected to his sovereign will to make all things right. Look at verse 3. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. I want to hone in and focus on one word. Notice it says, For still the vision awaits its appointed time. Appointed time. What does that mean? That means there is a plan. That means, Habakkuk, regardless of what you think you're seeing happening in your life, regardless of what you think you're seeing happen in the world, regardless of how chaotic it may look to you, Habakkuk, I'm telling you, everything is happening by appointment because there's a plan. Now, who could say that? Only a sovereign God. Only a sovereign God who knows the end from the beginning. And when we look at a moment and say, it's chaos, God says, no, everything is right on schedule. What? This is what he tells Habakkuk. Because when God looks at his will, his will for each of our lives, and God is concerned, 
for each of our lives and his will for each of us are a part, though, of his greater will and purpose of being sovereign over all history and all creation. Here's what we learn from this. God's answers are always first connected in his sovereign will to make all things right. What does sovereign mean? It means God's in charge, period. In the sentence, in the paragraph, stop note, stop transcript, God's in charge, period. That's what God's sovereign rule means. So here's what he is telling Habakkuk. Regardless of what you see and regardless of how you're interpreting what's going on, everything's going according to plan, Habakkuk. Everything is going according to plan because I'm in charge and I know what I'm doing. Also, that God's answers can seem slow. It's interesting. After he says the appointed time, notice it says it awaits the appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. So here's what we learn is that what God is sovereignly doing in the world from our vantage point in our lifetimes, it seems slow. It seems slow. When we need an answer in the immediate moment, what God is doing through the course of history seems very, very slow to us. But just because it seems slow, don't think for a minute that it's not happening. When life seems in disarray, when life seems that it is being destroyed right before us, when life seems hard and difficult, and we hear that God has a plan, it often will seem slow. This is helpful for me because it's one of the things that when I am processing, God, why are you allowing this to happen in my life, in my family, at my work, in my culture, in my people, in my day? Why are you doing these things? God says it's according to my plan. And by the way, if it's according my, to my plan, likely to you, it will seem slow. Why? Because he's God and we're not. God, to him, as according to Peter, 1,000 years is, is to one day, and one day is as 1,000 years, meaning that God does not see time like we do. Life is so short for us, and sometimes things seem slow, but God says it only seems slow to you. If it seems slow, wait for it. You can trust that I'm going to make this right. Also, not just that God's answers can seem slow, that God's answers are sure. God's answers are, answers are sure. Notice it will surely come. It will not delay. So what is he telling Habakkuk? First, Habakkuk says, I've got a big problem with all this, God. Why are you allowing this to happen? Why would you do such a thing? Why is this bad stuff happening? Why are you seemingly going to go along with this and allow Babylon to do this? I've got a big problem. First of all, God doesn't leave him hanging. He answers. He gives him a straightforward answer. And he connects his answer to his sovereign will. And he says, but Habakkuk is probably going to seem slow to you, but it is sure. So what's the application for us in this? That when we sit and wait on the wall because life is hard and say, God, there's our answer. Is that, listen, God really is in control. And it may seem slow to us, but God is in control which leads us to what the actual answer is 
to Habakkuk's question. Remember, Habakkuk's question was twofold. Is, first of all, why are you not doing something about the wickedness of Judah? And then when God said, okay, I'm doing something. Then the second complaint was, whoa, why would you use the Babylonians? They are way worse than us. God, why would you choose to use bad when you could clearly use good? Meaning, Lord, if you were going to make things right in our nation, why not just send us revival? Why, why you could just as easily do that, God. Why would you use the Babylonians, the worst people on the face of the earth that scoop up the earth like a fish in a dragnet and live in prosperity and then praise their false gods and their power and their vanity after doing so? God, why would you use those people to do this? And I'm going to wait for an answer. So here's the answer. Verse number four. God's answer contrasts the two postures of people in the world. Remember, Habakkuk is seeking to understand why would you use the worst people to discipline your people? Why would you use the worst kind of bad to achieve some kind of good? And God says, well, Habakkuk, let's understand. There's two kinds of people in the world. Look at verse 4. Behold, his soul is puffed up. Who is the his here? His is referring to Babylon. This is the one who carries the dragnet in chapter 1, dragging the dragnet along the bottom of the sea and gathering all the nations as the fish as as fish so this is the abusive babylon and god says here's our answer his soul is puffed up it is not upright within him that's person number one but the righteous shall live by faith now he's going to expand this But essentially, this is God's answer. Habakkuk, there is a proud person, there are the proud, and then there are the righteous. And he's going to expand what this means, but he's bringing Habakkuk along in Habakkuk's understanding of why God is working the way he's working. First of all, notice he calls them the proud. Notice it says, His soul is puffed up. It is not right within him. We'll come back and talk about the proud in just a minute, but I want you to make a mental note of who the proud man is. This proud man is someone who, through his arrogance, is acting in the world the way he is. But God is saying, Habakkuk, don't be fooled. He may look proud and arrogant on the outside but his soul is not right within him this is the first part of god's answer because habakkuk is looking at babylon and he sees prosperity and wealth and fatness so to speak from life and abundance and he sees it at the expense of all these peoples and what god says is habakkuk You're wrong about Babylon. Yes, he's proud. And yes, you may look at him and see how much he has. But he's saying, Habakkuk, I'm telling you, at night, he's scared to death on his pillow. It is not right with his soul. 
Because though it seems like he can do whatever he wants and he is just fine and happy, at night, he's scared to death. His soul is unsettled. So first thing, Habakkuk, Babylon's not who you think they are. You think they're just able to do whatever and they're not bothered by it at all? Oh, that's all a facade. On the inside, they have inner turmoil. But then he says there's the second person, the righteous. Notice he says, but the righteous shall live by faith. Now, in order for us to understand what he's saying here, what does the word righteous mean? Well, first of all, righteous does not mean sinless. Righteous does not mean sinless because there are people in the Bible called righteous who sinned. Also, righteous does not mean sinless, but it does mean to be in right relationship with God and humans. When you hear the word righteous, it means to be in the word right and right relationship with God and human beings. Who's the first person? Well, let me say this first. What that, what that means is that righteousness is both personal and interpersonal. It's not just having a heart right with God. It's having a life right with your neighbors, both personal and interpersonal. The first person in the Bible who's called righteous is not Jesus. The first person in the Bible is called, who is called righteous is Noah. Noah. Now, was Noah sinless? Of course not. Noah was not sinless. But notice what it says in Genesis 6, 9. It'll be on the screen. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. We see the description here. Noah was righteous because why? He was right with his neighbors and he was right with God. Noah walked with God and he lived a life at peace with his neighbors. That's what it means to be blameless in his generation. So righteousness, according to Noah's life, the first time righteousness is used in the Bible, means to be in right relationship with God and humans. Genesis 7.1 also says this, Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me and before me in this generation. Noah, you are in right relationship with me and you are in right relationship with your neighbors. So when the Bible says here that the righteous shall live by faith, that in order to be right with God and right with your neighbors, you live by faith. Noah is the first person who did this. Now, by understanding the meaning of righteous, it really helps us with another character in the Old Testament and why the New Testament calls Lot righteous and compares him to Noah. Perhaps you know the story of Lot, Abraham's nephew. Abraham's nephew that separated from Abraham and then Abraham's nephew who got closer and closer to the city of Sodom and eventually moved into Sodom and then when the angels came to destroy Sodom, you probably remember the story, Lot welcomes them into the city because Lot is sitting at the city gates as a part of the community and then prepares a meal for them. You know the rest of the story. The men of Sodom surround the house, say they're going to abuse Lot. Lot, in a very weird way and something that I can't understand as a dad, 
says, here, don't abuse these men. You can take my daughters instead. But God spares all that, and the angels pull them inside, strike the men with blindness, and Lot is taken out of the city. Now, one of the things that bothered me for years is the New Testament calls Lot righteous. In fact, let me read it to you. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 5-9. through 9. It says, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness. Okay, I get Noah being righteous, right with God and others. With seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what was going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, whoa, whoa, righteous Lot, time out, hold, hold on. Righteous, no, 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 not righteous lot. Maybe morally compromised, backslidden, unwise, foolish lot. Not righteous lot. See, the reason we struggle with the New Testament calling lot righteous is because we think of righteous as being sinless. But righteous meaning, is meaning as far as it depends on you to be in right relationship with God and others. So, Lot did his best attempt to be right with God. He welcomed the visitors, and he did his best attempt to be right with his neighbors. In fact, read the rest of the story here. It says, Greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. So what does Lot's story tell us? Whatever Noah and Lot is, that is righteousness. Perfect righteousness is ultimately Jesus. And that's who they're pointing to. That's next week. Please come back. But these guys are a picture of imperfect righteousness which is being in right relationship with God and your neighbors. Bring it back to Habakkuk. Here is what Habakkuk's answer is from God. Habakkuk, you're wondering why I'm working the way I'm working. And I'm telling you my answer is there's two people in the, kinds of people in the world. The proud that have a tormented soul and then the righteous who live by faith. Here is the contrast, which brings me to the next thing. Habakkuk learns that the proud are dominated by four things. Verse number four, again, his soul is puffed up and not upright within him. First, Habakkuk learns that the wicked and the proud has an unsettled soul. God's answer to Habakkuk is, Babylon ain't cracked up, it ain't much is not as much as it's cracked up to be. As strong and as mighty as he looks on the outside, he is scared to death on his bedside. For instance, we all have these examples in our mind of people who seemingly cheat their way through life and seemingly always get off scot-free. Me saying that right now, you're immediately thinking of somebody. You're like, my, my cousin, my brother, my uncle, my political opponent, my this, my that. We've all got somebody in our minds that they seem, through, through wheeling and dealing deceitfully, 
and hypocrisy are able to just cheat the system and get away with it and their life is great and here we are trying to please God and our life is hard and I look at their life and their life is awesome why am I trying to do what God wants me to do when they're just doing whatever they want to do and they have an amazing life they've got all this wealth and prosperity and power and influence God says they have an unsettled soul God says if you have it your soul would be unsettled too their life is not what you think their life is. People who go through their life lying the whole time, ultimately you don't get away with it. And it robs you of inner peace. I heard a story this week. It's pretty good. It was about a senior adult lady. I don't know about swindling people or cheating people. I don't know why the story is about a senior adult lady. I guess it could be about anybody, but it just said a senior adult lady. Anyway, she got pulled over speeding. Blue lights appear behind her, and she gets pulled over for speeding, and the officer comes and knocks on the glass and said, ma'am, will you step out of the car? She said, I will not. I said, oh, okay, well, can I, can I see your license and registration, proof of insurance? She said, no. He said, well, ma'am, why not? She said, well, I don't have a license. He said, well, why don't you have a license? And she said, well, because it was revoked, because I got several DUIs. Oh, okay, well, do you have registration or proof of insurance? No. Why do you not have registration proof of insurance? Well, it's because I stole this car. Really? Well, does the person you stole this from, do they know that you have stolen this car? I'd say not. Why? She said, because when I stole it from him, right before I stole him, I cut him up into little pieces and put him in my trunk. Cop was like, oh my goodness. He said, ma'am, stay in the car. Got on the radio. Hey, I have got a serious problem here. I need backup. I need everybody at the station. Uh, this lady is saying that she's got some guy cut up into little pieces in the back of her car. She's like, uh, got a DUI, revoked license, and she's driving, she stole the car. I need backup. So they all get there. And the sergeant comes out. And he says, don't worry, I'll handle this. He goes back up. The man, lady's still sitting in the car. He says, ma'am, we step out of the car? She said, yes, sir. Steps her out of the car. Okay. He said, ma'am, uh, license, registration, proof of insurance. She said, yeah, no problem. Here it is. Pulls out her license, proof of insurance, registration. He said, ma'am, is this your stuff? Yeah. Wait, is this your car? Oh, yeah, I've had this car for years. Here's my registration showing that I owned it. Oh, Sergeant says, ma'am, would you mind popping your trunk for me? She pops the trunk, looks in the trunk, clean as a whistle, nothing wrong with it. He looks in there and he goes, man, man, I don't know what this was about. Ma'am, this is the craziest thing. Because my officer told me that you had a revoked license and that you had stolen this car. And not only that, you had killed the man you'd stole it from and cut him up into little pieces and he put it you put him in the trunk i can't that's what he told me and the lady looked at him and said sergeant that is so ridiculous that he would say something like that i bet he told you i was speeding too right <laughs> that'll make sense to you later but we all know people like that who can like swindle their way out of everything 
God says, it's not right with their soul. And envying their life, you don't know what you're asking for because they have no peace. Also, the, the proud are not just dominated by an unsettled soul. They're dominated by a pursuit of prosperity. Look in verse 5. Moreover, wine is a traitor. Another translation is wealth. The whole idea of wealth is so betraying because the more you have, the more you want. The pursuit of prosperity. Another is the unquenchable desire for more. Notice that he is like death. He never has enough. That the proud have an unsettled soul. They want and consume wealth. And after consuming it, they just want more. And then also, they have an unconcern for whoever they hurt in order to gain. It doesn't matter who they plow over. This is like Babylon. It doesn't matter who I cut down as long as I can gain. And he's saying to Habakkuk, this is the proud, and you think that he's getting away with it, Habakkuk. I'm telling you, he has no peace. Then there's Habakkuk's response. Excuse me, the response of the other person. Habakkuk learns the righteous live by faith. God says, all right, the proud live with an unsettled soul and pursuit of prosperity, prosperity and an unquenchable desire for more, and they run their lives by plowing over everyone who's in their way. But the righteous is different. Notice that God doesn't say the righteous live by inner peace. He doesn't say, Habakkuk, you know what? The righteous shall live by inner peace. Because inner peace is fleeting, y'all. This is one of the things that I think is so deceitful when it comes to talking to Christian people is that when people will say, listen, I just have an inner peace from God. Amen. Amen. But don't think for a minute that because you're a Christian, that's all you'll have. Because you read the Bible. Half of the Psalms are about being not at peace with yourself and inside. And if we think that just having an inner peace is what it means to be right with God, listen, if you're looking for inner peace, you've heard me say it before, you need to look to marijuana. And I'm not endorsing it. But you'll find it there more readily than you'll find it in God. Don't smoke marijuana. Don't eat it. Don't consume it in any form. Now, what I'm getting at, though, is this. We don't live... By inner peace. We live by faith. Also, we don't live by the enjoyment of blessings. Notice God doesn't say to Habakkuk, Habakkuk, the righteous, those who are right with God and others, they will live by blessings. No. Because you may have them one day and they may be gone the next. You can follow God today and lose everything tomorrow. That's why you don't live by blessings. Not only that, the righteous do not live by success. Habakkuk, I'll tell you, the righteous live by success. No. Because sometimes you can be a, a loser and follow God. Another thing is the righteous do not live by relational harmony with others. You know what the New Testament says? As far as it depends on you, be at peace 
with everyone you come in contact with. But it's as far as it depends on you. You can't get along with some people. Sometimes you can lay yourself down like a bridge over troubled water and be doing everything that God wants you to do and not have relational harmony with those around you. Because you know what? It's not ultimately up to you. But if you tell yourself what it means to be righteous is to be in right relationship and relational harmony with others at all times, you're going to be let down. Because the righteous don't live by inner peace or the enjoyment of blessings or success or relational harmony. The righteous live by faith. And faith is believing what you cannot see. The righteous are in right relationship with God and in others, not because of inner peace, blessing, success, and harmony. They're right with God and others because they have faith that God is going to work through this regardless if these things exist or not. This is massive because Habakkuk is about to endure the complete overthrow of his nation and God is telling Habakkuk, Habakkuk, there's a way forward for you. You trust in me that regardless if you have peace or blessings or success or relational harmony, it won't matter because you're not putting your stock in those things because those things flee you. You're putting your stock in me. This is God's answer to Habakkuk. The righteous live by faith. The righteous live by taking a step back and saying, God, I don't know if this is going to get better or not, but I'm trusting that you do have this appointed plan. And I'm trusting that given time, that you're going to do this right. Jeremiah 33, 16, I'll close with this verse, it'll be on the screen. It says, in those days Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Do you want inner peace? Are you looking for blessings and success and harmony with others? All of those things? Good. I am too. It can only be found in Christ. Because he is the only blesser whose blessings cannot be taken away. This is what it means that the righteous live by faith. They don't live by what they can see and understand. They live by confidence in a God that when it's all said and done, it's going to work out and that God's plan will prevail. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a lot to take in, a lot to digest. And Lord, I think of my own life in trying to, to make sense of all the difficulties that I've experienced. And Lord, I try to bring the working it out into the present moment. And Lord, sometimes the working it out takes time. It's long. It seems 
like it may never come, but you tell us in your word it will come. But our life is not found. True life is not found through inner peace, blessings, success, and a good life with others. True life is found by trusting you, period, because everything else flees. This is such a hard thing to swallow. It was for Habakkuk, it is for me. But it's true. Lord, help the parts of me that want to buck against this truth. That God, you really are trustworthy and you are committed to making all things right. Help us to quiet our soul before you trust by faith that you have made things right and you will. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.